All right, so good evening. I'm Joe Collins. Welcome to Shoreline Church. Our mission is to love and to live like Jesus. And after watching that video, I want you to know we do believe in Jesus Christ. And we, we do teach our kids to love the Lord, but apparently they love to have water wars up at camp as well. Uh, and uh, if you're wondering who the weirdest looking guy was, it was Gio in that outfit that was getting attacked by everybody. But uh, it looks like a lot of fun up there and uh, always grateful. All of my kids went to camp and through the, the preteen camp and they always came back with great experiences. I know your kids have too as well. Uh, so we just really appreciate not just you as parents, but all the workers that go up there and make that camp so great. It's a highlight every year and it really goes a long way to moving the hearts of the kids and... Um, you know, and we're really grateful for that. So before I get started, though, I wanted to uh, remind you of the series we're in. It's called Jesus Worth Following. And uh, the idea is we're going through the pages of the book of Mark, and we're just following Jesus where he went in that gospel. Last time I was here, we talked about humbling ourselves before God. Today, I want to talk about humbling ourselves before God's word. So there was a teenage boy and uh, he had just passed his driving test. And so he wanted to start using the car and he went to his dad and he said, dad, I've passed the driving test. I'm so ready to start driving. And his dad said, well, son, we need to wait a little bit because you know, you, there's a few things you gotta work on before I'm willing to let you start taking the car. Number one, you're gonna have to get your grades up. I mean, you've been hovering around C's and we need to see you getting some B's or better before you start driving. Secondly, I really would like you to start reading the Bible a little bit. I, I, you know, we go to church, we're believers, but I notice you, you, you don't take that seriously. So you need to start reading your Bible. And lastly, you need to get your hair cut. I'm just not going to let you walk around with that long, shaggy hairdo wherever you go. Then you can start driving the car. So the, the boy thought about it for a minute and he said, okay, dad, okay, fair. So about six weeks go by and he comes back and he says, okay, dad, I'm ready to start driving. He says, uh, here's my report card. As you can see, B's are better. I really worked hard, got all my grades up. Dad said, okay, that's pretty good. So then the dad asked him a couple questions about the Bible, wanted to know what the names of the books of the Bible were, a couple main characters, and the kid answered him, no problem. So clearly he had been reading his Bible. And he said, see, I'm totally ready. And the dad said, well, there's one thing, son, that you haven't dealt with, and that's your hair. It's still really long and shaggy, and that was part of the deal. You had to do all three. And the son said, well, dad, you know, as I've been reading the Bible, I've noticed that many of the great men in the Bible had long hair. <laughs> Samson had long hair. Moses had long hair. There's even, there's even the idea that Jesus had long hair. And so I'm just trying to be like the great men of the Bible. And the dad said, you know, son, that's great, but did you notice that they walk everywhere they went? <laughs> you know, before you uh, get into an argument, it's usually a good idea you should know what you're talking about before you decide to engage into an argument. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thanks for this time and for this opportunity to preach down here and for this great church. I pray for your spirit to be with us. Speak to us through your word. Inspire us with your word. Help us to be moved deeply by your word and to humble ourselves before your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to start in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. 
Later, they sent, some, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? To catch you up to speed, if you haven't remembered or if you're new, Jesus spent his to three years on this earth as an adult, zigzagging all over the land of Palestine, preaching repentance and practicing grace. He made quite a name for himself. And when the time was right, in the last year that he was on this earth, the last Passover that he sent, that he spent on this earth before he was arrested and crucified, he went into the city of Jerusalem to much fanfare, a big parade. We call that Palm Sunday. Thousands and thousands of people came out, called him the Messiah, praised God. It was this great moment where he was at the pinnacle of his notoriety. The next day, he returned into the city of Jerusalem and into the temple. And we have a little map of that up on there. Very simple map of the the temple area. And when he was in the temple, he cleared the temple of the money changers and the merchants and the traders that were doing business in the temple and ruining the worship for the Gentiles. Made a big scene. That was Monday. Now it's Tuesday. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And he returns to the scene of the crime. He returns to the temple. After all that had happened on Sunday with the big parade, and then on Monday with the clearing of the temple, here he is, he comes back again. And immediately he's engaged in several arguments. The first one we talked about last week. It was the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish people. It was like their Supreme Court. They immediately met him at the door and got into a very quickly into an argument with him about by whose authority does he think he had the right to do what he did on Monday. Of course, after that interaction, he really showed that he had the authority. And he had really, uh, even though they were accusing him of heresy, he really showed that they were the ones who were really the, the heretics and they were the ones that were in the wrong. And he did that very publicly in the temple courts in front of hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Well, after they were done arguing with him, another group came and argued with him. In fact, there's three, there's four more arguments we're going to look at. We're going to look at three of them today. But it was literally one argument after another on Tuesday. Have you ever had a Tuesday like that? Nice day at work and it's just problem after problem after problem, argument, fight with a coworker, whatever. Well, that was Jesus' Tuesday the last week of his life. So the second group comes to them is a group of Pharisees and Herodians. Now, this is an odd group of people to come as a group because the Pharisees and the Herodians had nothing in common. In fact, they were enemies, but here, somehow, they became frenemies. And so there, here they are together trying to get Jesus trapped into some sort of argument to make him look bad so they can discredit him in front of all these people. He, the Sanhedrin tried, they failed, they looked like the fools, and now the Herodians and the Pharisees are coming together and they're going to try to make Jesus look bad in front of this crowd of people. And their trick was to ask him a question about something called the imperial tax. Now, for the Herodians, the imperial tax was not a big deal. It was a tax that Rome issued on all non-Roman citizens. It was a tax for being non-Roman. Now, the Herodians, they were Roman sympathizers. 
they had no major problem with this tax. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were very nationalistic. They were very pious and religious, and they viewed the tax as almost idolatry. It, to them, it was like giving honor to Caesar who claimed to be God. And so in some weird way in their minds, you were, you were being idolatrous if you paid this tax. And so they asked Jesus about the tax. Now the goal that they had, what made these two groups frenemies at this moment was they didn't like Jesus and what he was doing, but they wanted to get him to take a side. That was the goal. That was the trap here. Can we get Jesus to vote one way or the other? Liberal, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. Can we get Jesus to go one way or the other? Now, we live in a very divided time. It seems to be the thing in our society. You watch the news and, you know, it's, it's like, what news do you watch? And that defines who you are as a person. What channels are you into versus this guy? And, it, and, and they're perpetuating this constant sense of division. It's one versus the other. It's, it's, and that's the only choices you have. And they were trying to get Jesus to take a side. The reason why is because if Jesus would have said, hey, the tax, no big deal, pay the tax. Well, then the Pharisees, he's idolatrous. He's a bad guy. You don't need to listen to him. And all the people that agreed with the Pharisees would immediately oppose Jesus. But if Jesus said the tax is idolatry, then the Herodians would say he's a, he's a, a seditionist. He's, he's trying to start a revolution. The Romans are our allies and all the people that favored the Romans would be against him. See, they were trying to get Jesus to go one side or another. You know, as I said, we do live in a very divided time. The point I want you to hear from this, though, is before we get into our opinions about what we feel about the state of affairs of today, our society, before we get into any one of these hot-button issues that seem to be out there all the time, and, and it's, it's almost like you can't even go a first date. You go on a first date and you get a rundown of what do you think about A, B, and C. You know, you know, what side of the fence are you on? Before you even, you know, before you can even get a, a relationship going, before you can do anything, it's you've got to be vetted to see where you stand. Well, I'm going to tell you this. Before you get caught into that trap, you better know what you're talking about before you decide to get into that kind of an argument. Because it's a zero-sum game. There's always going to be a loser. At some point, you're going to side, and it's going to be the wrong side. And so the strongest admo admonishment I can give us as Christians is we got to know what we're talking about before we get into these kinds of debates, before we get into these kinds of arguments. A lot of times... I just recommend avoid them. Now, I'm not saying that we can't have opinions and we can't try to have good conversation and help each other understand each other better. I'm just saying when, when it's a trap, when, when, when those conversations turn into us versus them or you versus me, I'd be really careful about that kind of interaction. Next verse. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. 
<laughs> so Jesus, in his wisdom, is, here it is, what side are you on? And he says, well, bring me a coin. Of course, they bring him a Roman coin, and it has Caesar's inscription on it. And he says the famous line, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Now, we look back and we go, oh, what a great answer, and uh, duh, obvious. But you got to remember, this is the first time somebody said something like that. I mean, this really shows that Jesus was on a completely different level. And what he does in this argument, what he does by taking the coin, looking at it, and asking whose inscription it is, and says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, is what he does is he changes the terms of the argument. You see, for them, the argument was going to be, what side are you on? And there was only two choices, pro or against. But what Jesus does is he changes the basis of the argument. He refuses to get caught up into this little tit for tat and to take a side. Rather, he reminds these people, they were religious people, that God is the God of heaven and earth. And therefore, all human government is at some point under God. And here's the hard thing. Even if you disagree with it, it's still ordained by God. Throughout human history, there have been good governments and bad governments. Today, there are good governments and bad governments. In our country, there are good policies and there are bad policies. But all of them fall under the authority of God. He lifted them out of the, of the muck, of the mudslinging, and he brought them to God. Who do we really honor? And so, regardless of how you and I may feel about a government or about a policy or a political party, at the end of the day, we have to submit ourselves to the will of God. And that's one of the things that really distinguishes Jesus from me and from so many of us. You see, I want so badly for God's will to be my will. Or my, I should say my will to be God's will. I want God to agree with me. And I think he does agree with me. Because I have the right perspective. But Jesus was different. You see, for Jesus, God's will was his will. And so whenever we start dealing with controversial issues, whenever we find ourselves in, a, in this kind of a conversation, the first thing you got to remind yourself is what is God's will? We have to start there. Not with what I think, not with what I feel, but we have to have the humility to go before God and before his word and let him tell us what his will is. Verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. 
at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. So Jesus had argued with the Sanhedrin earlier. Then he got into the argument with the Pharisees and the Herodians. And he dispatched them by bringing them back to God and God's will. And now another group has come to argue with him. Because again, they're upset at what he did the day before by clearing the temple in the way that he did. This group is called the Sadducees. Now, we don't know a ton about the Sadducees. We know a few things. What do we know about them? We know that they were a small group, but they were intellectual. They were very influential. They were landowners. Politically speaking, they, they tended to favor Rome. Religiously, they were what we call torah onlyists. That's my word. In other words, they believed in the Torah, which was the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they pretty much rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets. They didn't accept any of that. It was only the Torah was the true will and word of God. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in resurrection. So it's kind of a bummer of a way to live, right? There's, no, there's nothing good after you die. You just die. And because of that, they, were, they tended to be hedonistic. In other words, they tended to live your best life now. That was the book they would have been reading. Live your best life now. Now, they ask a very unusual question. Some of us are reading this, and maybe it's your first time, and you've got, I have no idea what they're talking about. This is a little bit of inside baseball. You do need a little bit of Jewish understanding of Jewish tradition and law to understand the question. And I will give you some of that, and you'll, it'll make total sense to us when we're done. Maybe you've read this before and never quite understood it. And what it was that they were trying to do, what was the game that they were playing? But let me say this. The question they asked was about something called Levite marriage. But the reality was they weren't actually questioning him about marriage. They were questioning him about resurrection. That was their big argument. They were actually mocking him. In fact, many scholars believe that this question was a common joke that they would tell to make fun of people who believed in the resurrection. I want to make one point really clear here. Jesus believed in resurrection. I believe in resurrection. And I'm talking about a full-blown physical resurrection where we will be reunited with our bodies. Now, our bodies will be different. But this world and our bodies will be regenerated into a state that is eternal. And it will be amazing, better than anything we could think of or imagine. Jesus believed in that. Much of Israel believed in that. The Pharisees believed in that. Many of his opponents believed in that, but not the good old Sadducees. That's why they were sad, you see. Because for them, you died and it was over, so it was all about he who dies with the most toys wins. That was their philosophy. So they come to Jesus and they try to trap him with a question about Levite marriage. Now let me explain the question, and then I'll put all the pieces together. 
in the Old Testament, in the law, in the Jewish law, there was this concept of Levite marriage. And what it meant was that if a woman husband had passed away, leaving her no children, she had the option, and that's an important thing to note, she had the option of marrying the next closest kin, which would have been a brother, and if not a brother, you know, uh, I don't know who the next and how that goes, but maybe a cousin, you know, whatever. But the purpose of it was to protect the woman. We like to think, oh, it's so patronistic and and uh, it's so anti-feminist because they were using these women and they were treating them like property. No, actually, that's not the case. It was true that many cultures at that time treated women badly, like many cultures today treat women very badly. But in the in the Judeo culture, in the Hebrew culture, the goal of Levite marriage was was to protect the woman by giving her offspring. You say, why does that matter? Well, because inheritances were passed on through the children. And so by giving her a child, marrying the brother, and then him giving her a child, and treating her like a wife, by the way, she would have an inheritance for herself and for her children. You follow me? So it was really a way to protect the woman. And remember, it was an option. She did not have to exercise the option. There's actually an account in the Bible of a woman not exercising the option. And it's a hilarious story of how they would reject the option to marry. I can't get into it, but it involves a sandal and spitting. It's hilarious. Okay, so you understand love, right, marriage. Now let's get to what the trap is of the Sadducees. They didn't believe in resurrection. Remember that. They didn't believe in an afterlife. And so they ask a question that came from the law that would create a confusing situation in the afterlife if an afterlife was real. It's called an absurdo reductum, meaning it's a logical fallacy. They were trying to show that the belief in resurrection was actually illogical. And the reason why it was illogical was because if a woman was married to a man and then he died and then the next one died and the next one died, when she resurrected, who would she be married to? It does create quite confusion, doesn't it? Some of us, no judgment, have been married more than once. And we're all going to die and we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be in heaven. And whose wife were you? Who do, you know, who were you married to? How does that work? And their point was, is there can't be a resurrection because this would create all kinds of confusion in the afterlife. Do you see their logic? To them, it was illogical to think that God would allow an afterlife where people who were married in this life would be confused about who they were married to in the afterlife. It's a logical fallacy in their mind. God, in their minds, would not create a law in this life that would create confusion in the afterlife. Now, we see this kind of arguing all the time in our society. They try to make traditional uh, values, Christian beliefs, absurd. You see this on TV. You see people mocking 
believers, or maybe they just mock somebody they don't agree with. Maybe it's not even a religious argument, but you see this happening. You ever watch? I don't even watch the news anymore for this reason, but you see two people debating and they just try to mock each other. It's all they're doing. There's no information being communicated. There's no intelligent dialogue. It's just mocking each other. And they're just trying to get you in the gotcha moment. Well, the Sadducees, this was their gotcha moment. All these dumb people that believe in the resurrection, they don't even think about what would happen with Levite marriage. What dummies. So they thought they got Jesus. Before we make too much light of this, I want you to know I have a very dear friend. Was in the church for many years. I helped study the Bible with him. I helped baptize him. He left Islam to become a Christian. He was a Christian for many years. A wonderful believer. A good friend. And he got caught by a logical absurdity. Another faith group came to him and asked him this question. If God created man in his image, and that was Adam, then where did Eve come from? Wasn't she created in God's image? And so would that logically mean that there's a male and a female God? And that was their logical fallacy. That was their absurdio reductum. They, they presented this argument that if there's a man and there's a woman, then there must be a man God and a woman God because humans were created in God's image. Now, you and I may be going, well, that's weird. I don't even get that. That's crazy. I've never heard such thing. Well, I had never, I mean, I was literally like, what? You believe that? And he did. It got into his mind. It got into his crawl. Into his crawl. He couldn't let it go. He ended up leaving the faith to become part of this little offshoot segment, whatever this group is called, and is now worshiping there, believing that there's two gods, a male and a female god. So this little logical fallacy is a very powerful way to sort of undermine people's belief in what we know to be true in Scripture. So it's very important that we understand the Bible correctly so that we can protect ourselves from these kinds of arguments. I've seen it happen in politics. People make some argument that on the surface sounds great and logical, but they don't think about the next two steps after it. But they get convinced by just that one argument. Or you see this in all kinds of life. You and I have been guilty of it. We've been caught up in these kinds of things. They're very, very powerful. And this is what the Sadducees were trying to do to Jesus. Verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning book uh, of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So Jesus quickly takes this argument and really levels the playing field. He really lays into them about their illogical thinking. And he does so by pointing out two things that they're ignorant of. He called them ignorant. Now, let me just say this. For everyone that was there in the crowd, remember the Sadducees were kind of a small group. They were kind of like the weirdos of the religious world at the time. And so I'm sure at this point, the whole crowd was probably like, go get them, Jesus. Like they were probably tired of the Sadducees. There wasn't very many of them. And they were looked at as like weirdos anyways. 
So this was kind of easy pickings. But Jesus says you're ignorant of two things. Number one, the scripture, and number two, the power of God. I want to talk about the power of God first. If they can accept that God created heaven and earth, which they did, and that God created it the way he wanted to create it, then is it not possible that a God that powerful could create the afterlife in whatever way he wants to make it? You see, he actually kind of took their logical fallacy and pointed out one that they were having, which was somehow God could create the heavens and earth however he wanted it, but then in the afterlife, he was suddenly bound by all kinds of rules that he couldn't, he couldn't work around. The truth is, if God created heavens and earth the way he did, then he can create the afterlife in whatever way he wants. If he wants us to all look like giraffes, we'd all look like giraffes. If, if heaven is floating on clouds, then it's floating on clouds. God can do whatever he wants. He's God. That's one of the positives. That's one of the perks of being God, that you're all powerful, that you're not limited in any possible way. The power of God. And then Jesus gives us a little glimpse here of what the afterlife is going to look like. Now, I'm not going to write a whole doctrine here. A lot of people try to. I'm just going to give you the glimpse. It's just a glimpse. And what does he say? What is the afterlife going to look like? Well, the first thing is that it's going to be familiar but different. There's going to be something familiar about it when we arrive there. Hey, that's good news but it's going to be different at the same time. And one of the most notable differences is that our bodies will be like the angels. What that means is that we will be eternal. Amen for that. We will have eternal bodies. Well, now, if we have eternal bodies, then we really have no need for childbearing because there's no death. We don't need to replace the population. That means that there's no need for marriage. And so in the afterlife, this is the different part. I don't understand how it's going to be, but if anyone has been married more than once in this life, I don't know how it's going to work out, but trust me, it's going to work out fine in the afterlife, and it's going to make sense. It's not going to be weird or awkward. That's all I can say. Jesus doesn't give us any, any more glimpse. He just gives us a little taste. It's going to be different. It's going to be familiar, but different. And apparently there's going to be no need for procreation or marriage in the afterlife. Then he deals with the scriptures. Remember the Torah these were the Sadducees. They just believed in the first five books. And so Jesus quotes a verse from the Torah, from Exodus, one of the primary books of the first five books, one of their most favorite books. He quotes a passage from that book, Exodus chapter 3. He says, Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What he's pointing out there is that in the Torah, in the book that they 
adhered to and they thought was authoritative and all the other books were silly, but this was the book. And they believed that those books, the Torah, didn't say anything about resurrection. He actually pointed out that it actually does say something about resurrection because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not described as dead. They're described as alive, even though they had been dead now by this point in time for thousands of years. And so Jesus is very clearly pointing out that they don't even know their own teaching. They don't even know their own Bible. Because in their own book, their favorite book, it very clearly points out that after you die, you stay alive. He doesn't really give us much more information about that. But he says that these people are still living. Therefore, there is a resurrection. They didn't cease to exist. And then I love it. You are badly mistaken. Just lay it out right there. You know, at some point in my journey, my personal walk with God, I, I realized that I needed to know the Bible better than I did. That the Bible was the basis of my faith. That it's, it's the source of truth. It's the source of, of God's word to me. And that if I was going to be able to function as a Christian, I better know what it says. I better learn it. And so I made a decision years and years ago to dig deep, to study the Bible deeply. I'm all for reading the Bible and reading it casually because it's never going to be bad for you. But there is a point if you want to be able to defend your faith, if you, be, if you want to have the kind of faith that will stand up during difficult times, there is a point where you're going to have to make the same kind of decision to actually dig deep into the Bible and come to understand it and how logical and sensible it really is. If you cannot stand up, if your faith and your understanding of God's word does not stand up to people mocking it, then you don't know it well enough. Because the Bible's not in error. But maybe the level of faith you have or the level of understanding you have is insufficient. And so I want to challenge you, no matter how old you are, to read your Bible and go the extra mile. Dig deep into it. Study it. Learn it. Be able to communicate it and be able to defend it against people who come and try to mock you for believing in it. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So Jesus dispatches the Sadducees. The next person to come and argue with him is now a teacher of the law. And what is a teacher of law? Exactly what the title says. Their job was to study the law, the Bible, to know it inside and out, and to make right opinions or make decisions about what it says and teach it to other people. That was their job. In some ways, they were kind of like lawyers. You know, you'd have an argument with someone about what the Bible says and they would come and hear the arguments and they would study it out and give you an answer. It was their job to study the Bible, to memorize it, to comment on it. And so 
this guy, he's a teacher of the law, he's in the crowd, and he's watching Jesus have these arguments with these different people, and he's realizing that Jesus is giving some darn good answers. Now, if we read this same story in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to find out that this guy was not friendly. Mark, it sounds like he's kind of friendly. He wasn't. He was actually sitting there with a group of Pharisees. He happened to also be a Pharisee, and they were kind of sitting off to the side going, yeah, 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 this guy, Jesus... He's doing pretty good, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so he decides to join the fray. He he decides to step up and get into the argument after the Sadducees walk away with egg on their face. So now he asks Jesus a question. And again, on the surface, this seems like a pretty straightforward question. What's the most important commandment? Now, Remember for a second, we have read this for 2,000 years. We know this answer. It all makes sense to us. But back then, this was actually a hotly debated conversation. It was very common in the Jewish community to debate which command was the greatest. They weren't sure. In the law, the, 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 the law of Moses where the commandments come from, we call it the Ten Commandments, but it really was 600 and something commandments, They would debate about those commandments, which ones are the most important. It was an ongoing conversation. One of the most famous rabbis lived about 50 years, maybe 100 years before Jesus. His name was Hillel. We still hear his name today. You see a lot of synagogues are called Hillel. They're named after him. He was very famous. He was known as a very wise man, a very learned man. He understood the scriptures. Well, someone came to him and said, Hillel, how would you summarize all of the law while standing on one foot? In other words, how would you summarize it quickly? And this is what Hillel told him. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation of this. Go and study it. That's a pretty darn good answer. What is hateful to you, don't do to others. Kind of sounds like the golden rule. And in Jesus' day, people knew this teaching from Hillel. And to them, it was, it was the gold standard. It was very accepted. Like, hey, what a great summary of the Bible. Hillel, man, you're awesome. Well, this teacher of the law is thinking, okay, here's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. That's way up in Galilee. That's where the Hicks are from. You know, that's where the the people from the Podunk region, right? These were backwards, backwoods people. Nothing good could come out of Nazareth. They've even said that before. So they're thinking, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. He wasn't educated at the temple. He didn't study Hillel. I mean, come on. So they throw a question out there that's very theological in their mind. It's one of these uh, conversations that you would have in seminary school. And they think Jesus is going to get stumped by it because, hey, Hillel, nobody can compete with Hillel. Look at him. Look at that answer he gave. What an amazing answer. So they asked Jesus that same question. What do you think? Jesus does something really interesting. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the books of the Torah. It's a passage that's called the Shema, which means to hear. And it says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That statement was repeated by pious Jews 
ever since it was written down in Deuteronomy on a daily basis. It was very common for very pious and religious Jews to wake up and the first prayer of the morning was that prayer. They would wake up and they would say that prayer. And then they would say it again when they went to bed. And that had gone on for generations. It was one of the most familiar passages of the Bible. It's kind of like the John 3.16 of their day. We have John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Everyone knows that verse. Every, you know, sports game, you see somebody holding a sign, John 3.16 with the big hair or whatever, and they're, they're doing that, right? We all know it. For God so loved the world. Well, they knew it inside. They said it every morning. They said it every evening. Then Jesus added to it a quote from Leviticus, another book of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus did is he took these two commands and he put them into one because they really are the same command. And he basically said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love others as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. I want to pause for a second. Because this is literally from God's lips, from Jesus' lips to your ears. All of the law, all 600 and some odd commandments can be summarized in one. Love. Jesus summarized it. For centuries, the Jews were trying to figure out the best way to summarize it. And he goes, love. And it came right out of the books that they so fervently studied on a daily basis. And some of the passages they would quote every day as part of their normal ritual of, of their faith. And Jesus just took the two together and he goes, hey, that's easy. Love. Short enough. And boy, was it a better answer than Hillel. Hillel gave a good answer. Those you hate, don't do to others. But it's kind of a negative. It's a don't do. Jesus' answer was a do. Go in love. Love God, love others. Sounds a lot like mission love, doesn't it? Love God and love others. That's it. The whole law summarized right then and there. Better than Hillel could have ever said it. The irony is that these guys knew these verses inside and out, like we know John 3.16. But somehow, they were still asking the question after centuries. What is the greatest commandment? Uh, I don't know. What do you say every morning when you wake up? <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your There it is. Surprise, surprise. It was like right in front of them. And they debated it. We do that sometimes. <laughs> we read the Bible. And it's so obvious, it tells us what to do. And yet we go, are you sure it really says that? I don't know. You tell me what you think this says. Uh, it says to love people. Really? Let me, let me, you tell me what does this say. This is what we do. Part of humbling ourselves before God's word is to be humble enough to accept what's main and plain. We like to get into the, what does Revelation say? What does this psalm mean? What is this obscure thing about Leverite marriage? We love to get into these little debates. Uh, did Nostradamus predict the end of the world? And is he, did he know the Bible? You know, we want to do all that, and we forget that there are some very basic teachings that are main and plain. Let me tell you, before you get into any kind of argument with someone, you better know what's main and plain. 
and the most main and plain teaching of the Bible is love God and love others. Mission love. So this guy says to Jesus, well said, teacher. (laughs) You can imagine he's over there with his buddies on the side watching Jesus and he's thinking, let me get in there. These guys are all lightweights. Let me get in there and, you know, show this young guy up from Oxnard. And after about two seconds, he's like, oh, good job. That was a a good answer. Really can't argue with that one. You are right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared to ask him any more questions. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could just end an argument with just one word, you know, one answer? You're arguing, your kids, everybody's fighting in the house, and you're like, blah, blah, blah. And everybody goes, okay, okay, you won. That never happens. The second you try to end the argument, everybody else starts arguing, right? Jesus shut the whole place up in one argument. It was over. He had all these arguments all day long, and finally he went, love Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. Boom, we're done. Nobody else started arguing. They were done. Arguing was over. You know, what's cool here is that even though this guy was an enemy, even though this guy was op- opposing Jesus, even though he was there to trap Jesus like all the other people were, when he gave a good answer, when Jesus gave a good answer, he was able to recognize it, and Jesus saw that there might be hope in this guy. There might be hope for this guy. And so Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He's mission-loving him right then and there. Right in the middle of the debate, man, he sees an open door, and there he is trying to love this guy, trying to help him take a next step to becoming a believer. So Tuesday was a rough day. But by the end of the day, the arguing was over. No one dared to ask him any more questions. Here's the point. The next time you're going to get into a deep conversation, maybe even a debate, an argument with someone about God, about his word, don't be like the teenager who forgot that all the famous people of the Bible walked everywhere. (laughs) He missed some obvious points. Know what you're talking about. And the only way to do that is to humble yourself before God's word. We're going to close out in a word of prayer. Stand on up. Let's go arm in arm, our new little tradition. Then we'll end with some great fellowship. Father, it is really great to stand here and to see your word and to see the power of your word and to know that Jesus was uh, an expert because it was he was the author of your word. God, thank you so much for the encouragement and the support that the Bible gives us and the, the strength in our faith that it, it gives us. But help us to have the heart to be humble before it, to study it, to know it, and to be able to be well-equipped when we go and talk with people about you and about what it says. Thank you so much for this great fellowship and help us to enjoy a great time of encouragement and fellowship with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You're dismissed. <laughs>